Hello and welcome back to Angel Insights, the show that delves inside the world of the very earliest stages of investing to reveal the tactics, tips and strategies of those viewing and investing in startups. And joining us for the show today, I'm thrilled to welcome Francesca O'Brien at Syndicate Room. And in the show today with Fran, we really break down the DD process for prospective startups, discussing market size requirements, founding team requirements, how Fran actually sources fantastic companies and whether too much money being invested into startups can ever be a bad thing. If you love the show today and would like to see more, then head over to syndicateroom.com and check out the Investor Academy, or you can follow Syndicate Room on Twitter by adding Syndicate Room. It is now time, though, to begin with the show. So without further ado, I hand over to Francesca O'Brien at Syndicate Room. Fran, welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on finally. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Harry. Very pleased. Very pleased. Now, I'd love to start off with a bit about you and how you made your way into the startup and early stage investing scene from, I believe, a lawyer's start. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, the, the whole plan was to become a corporate commercial lawyer. Um, and at the pretty much the last second, I realized that um, oh, I just wanted the variety and perhaps even the uncertainty that comes from, uh, you know, starting off in startup life. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to look for something really exciting where I can get stuck in and I'll have more or less no idea what my role is going to be. And I can just try out different things. And that's exactly what this has been. And I've loved every second. Of it. I'm really intrigued because a lot of people always debate when choosing whether to join companies, whether to join the really early, you know, very risky in most cases, um, startup where you're employee number one, as you are at Syndicate Room, if we discount the fact founders, indeed, uh, indeed. Or, or join a big corporate. How, how did that decision play out in your mind? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. There's lots of advantages, obviously, that that come from starting off in a corporate world because you get a, a lot of very specific training. And that's absolutely great if you have this sense in yourself that you either really, really want to go down that path and make the most of that particular career. Because of course, as I say, the training is specific and that has you know pros and cons. It makes you very specialist and very well trained in something. But then actually, it's, it's quite difficult then to just sort of jump ship into something else. Now, obviously, people start out in consultancy and then they go on to become entrepreneurs or, um, you know, and a legal grounding is very useful for lots of different things. But I just thought, I just, I just thought, I, I just want to try it all now. I think I'm just impatient. I think I just thought, I, d- I don't want to go that way. I don't want to wait. I just want to get into that side of the of a career that 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 now basically. And, and joining at that early stage, you kind of have the jack of all trades hat on, you know, doing everything. So when did that transition? Now syndicate room. How many people are at syndicate room now? I believe it's 25 full time now, and that includes you know people we've got in Portugal as well as in Cambridge. So 25. So now your position is much more specialised. So mm-hmm. how, when did that uh, transition between jack of all trades to specialisation mm-hmm. happen? Yeah, you know what? There's this funny saying, which I'm sure you've probably heard, which is that companies change dramatically after about eight people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that was actually very true for us. So it got to the point where we were growing and we really just needed to bed down in our individual roles. And, and so there was almost a natural sense of from the very beginning, I'd been involved in all sorts of things, but I was really interested and really engaged with everything that was happening with the companies, you know, going out and convincing them syndicate rooms where you want to raise finance, you should come with us, Um, making sure that they were a good fit. And then, you know, working with them to actually get them on the platform and then get the money through the door at the end of it all. 
And so, and as part of that, you do need to be very aware of everything else that's going on. There's marketing in all of that. There's investor relations in all of that. You need to have a sense of the wider picture of the syndicate room identity. Um, but, but it just seemed like a, a natural move for me to, to focus on anything and everything to do with companies and, and deal flow in our pipeline and so on. And the, the team has kind of grown around that. And now the team themselves are becoming more specialized as well. And I really want to go through the journey there. You, you said about the different elements of syndicate room. And I want to discuss particularly the investment side and, and walk through um, the life cycle of an investment and how it goes through your processes. So let, let's start off first with the sourcing and bring it through the door. So how does your sourcing look like? What's the inbound to outbound? Um, yeah. And what are the keys to sourcing strategies? Mm-hmm. Of course. Well, as I'm sure you hear often, there are a lot of companies out there that are looking for money. Yeah, I've heard. (laughs) Um, And with crowdfunding, one of the first things that we come up against as a misconception about how we work is that you just need to be incorporated and your job's done. You can raise money now. Um, And that's just, that's just not the case with us. So one of the key things about Syndicate Room and our model is that from the very beginning, we've employed this investor-led model. In, in practice, what that means is a company needs to have a, a significant degree of its funding round already committed before we'll even take a closer look at it. Um, and, you know, there's, again, that, then that becomes misconstrued as, oh, they need to have the, you know, Bill Gates or somebody on board as a lead investor. That's not true. It could be investors following from a previous round. It can be, you know, new angel investors. The point is that we can understand who's looked into the valuation, because we don't really believe it's quite right that the company might value themselves. So anyway, in terms of the sourcing, it's it's a mix because it's difficult to find companies. It's, it's much more difficult to find companies in that stage than it is to just go and find companies that, that haven't had any money yet. So what are the most common ways that you do find those companies? Is it referrals? Is it networking events? What's it for you? Even kind of Matamark searching? It is all sorts of things. So investor um, investor referrals is a big one. So introducer referrals. So we have a, a fantastic partnerships program where we we go out to VCs, we go out to angels, and we we you know say bring your best deals to us. We're really interested in co investing alongside you. We're constantly scanning best of lists. So um, you know companies that have recently won awards. Um, publications that are coming out in quite specialist areas because again as a you know yes we're crowdfunding people often think oh it must all be very b2c it's not we do a huge amount of life sciences and and sas and so on so we're looking at very specialist publications absolutely networking events and we hold our own as well i mean i really wouldn't want to pinpoint just one mm-hmm. because it, it's so important that we we just keep our options open all the time and we're really you know going anywhere and everywhere to get the best companies and you said there about uh, introducer referrals mm-hmm. um so say i bring you a deal today a brilliant company and you look at the slide deck what's the first thing you go to you know some will say it's all about valuation market team what's your first one yeah it's a difficult one because you know i think everybody ends up saying i feel like everybody ends up saying team everyone says team and then sequoia, and says, then sequoia says market <laughs> and you think huh maybe maybe i should rethink this um but so, yeah. okay so team first and then what okay team Founders or founder, do you have a preference? And how much of a confidence boost do you get from solid uh, you know, first-class degrees from universities and Google backgrounds compared to self-starting entrepreneurs? To be honest, it does strike you as a little bit of a concern if it's a one-man band. 
Not necessarily a single founder if they have a management team around them that balances out their skill set, because it is unusual to find everything you need in one person. And even if you just break that down into the technical capabilities needed to run a platform, it's very hard to find that. And then also the marketing expertise and the networking expertise and the, the business and the accounting, all of that. So I prefer to see a balance. And I think that's probably fairly common. I don't know that it necessarily helps me. And I don't know, I don't know why this is perhaps to see Google or Facebook or whatever on there. I think one of the things that you do jump to though, is if they've had a previous success before, if they say, look, you know, I've, I've, I've got an exit here and I've done this already. You think, ah, okay, well, this person actually knows, they know how this is going to go. They know what they, what's required of them and how much work this is going to be. When you're selling a potential investment to, to your investors, is that something that they really look for then? Is the past success is a big clincher in them making the transition from interested to investing? I believe so. I believe so. There, there is a there is a correlation between size of team and interest of investment. And I think that we're aware that it's not even just the, the team that we point to, to our investors and say, hey, look, these guys have had a success before. It's then again, the lead investor, because uh, often if they've got a lead investor who's been attracted in them uh, and they've had an exit before, then that, that adds a lot of validity and legitimacy to the round, even if the founder themselves maybe is a little bit less experienced. So it can come from a degree of, of sources, that experience, but it helps. You said about following kind of a very experienced and expertised individual into an investment. Uh, someone on, on the show the other day said about the dominance of party rounds still today. I'm intrigued, how much of this kind of herding mentality in party rounds have you seen in your experience in the industry? It's an interesting one. Um, I mean, one of the things that we debate a fair amount is, is what's the role of overfunding? for example, in a, in a funding round, because it's a big thing that you'll see in, crowd, in crowdfunding that, um, you know, a company's looking out to raise a certain amount, they get there and then they keep on going. And, and there, is a, there is a sense that there are certain investors who like to pile in at that point and that that's almost their investment strategy, which, um, you know, isn't really much of a strategy. But uh, the other thing that we are aware of, though, is we, we analyze or we've, we've, we've named a, a particular round that we have on our site called a lift round. And a lift round is where a company's gone out to reach a certain um, amount of capital and they've got there and they've got there all through investors that they've sourced themselves. Um, and and we, we do think that that's, you know, that's impressive. If you go out and you get the capital that you need and you can raise it all pretty quickly, then yes, it, that should give investors a degree of confidence. I think it's about knowing where to draw the line and where to, where to split the herd mentality side uh, away from the, okay, well, who's actually invested here? Um, because it's, it's not just about the investment, but the quality of the investment that's really key. I have to say, I, was, I wasn't uh, planning on including this in the schedule, but it's a really interesting theme, the overfunding. Uh, where, where do you lie on the benefits of overfunding? If a startup sets a target amount, are they not just losing kind of additional equity that they don't need to lose if they're going into overfunding? It depends. It depends on the company. So very often, the company will know what it needs to, to perform its mission-critical tasks, and let's say that's half a million. But they'll also know that if they're raising an extra 100, 200,000, that's, that's a month or two extra runway, or it gives them a bit of breathing room to perhaps try and um, open the door on a new project that they would have otherwise have sidelined. With us, what we're ensuring is that they're very clear on what they would do with this extra cash, you know, um, that they can't just raise it because they, they, they feel like it. But ultimately, at the same time, they're giving away equity 
to be able to have this extra cash. So there is a balancing effect there. I think it's, it's very key that the company knows what it would do with it up front. That's the most important thing. I was also uh, at an event the other night, and on the theme of crowdfunding, I was asked, is, it, is too much money and dumb money a bad thing? Uh, and it's a very interesting topic. Uh, so, so is too much money and dumb money a bad thing and potentially damaging for companies, or is actually all capital good capital if there's some experience there? Uh, for me, I think you know it's a it's a straightforward no. You know, you've, a company needs investors that can, even if it's a portion of their investors, not all of their investors, that can bring more to the table. Because a business angel or a VC, that they are doing often more than just handing over a check. They've got and they've got networks, they've got experience of their own, um, and, and those things are hugely valuable. And they're not easy to come by. And the benefit of them spending the time to give the company those skills is that they they're investing. So it's a logical source of, the, of those sorts of um, helpful things for the company. And I think I, we think smart money is really important. And that's another reason why we insist on it for all of our companies. And, and kind of uh, talking about smart money and often their experiences related to the market itself and the particular vertical. And so discussing that vertical and market, how do you approach market size? We always hear about the VCs demanding a billion dollar plus market <laughs> size. What's your take on this? And how does it also differ? Because you're catering to an angel market to a large extent, you know, mm-hmm. HNWs. Does does that differ then? Do you need a hundred million instead of a billion? So I'm intrigued. What are your thoughts are? I certainly wouldn't want to put a number on it, but here, here's the rub. I think it's that there's scalability. That's what we're looking for, and what we're trying to understand when a company presents its future prospects to us. If it does just seem as though they're looking to raise enough money to sort of end up as one of those companies that sort of enters the land of the living dead, which can happen for all sorts of other reasons, but uh, they, they don't have the ambitions to really grow. They're not going to be the kind of company that's really suitable for equity investment, are they? Because you know, an investor who puts in, a, in, a, in cash for, for shares is expecting a, a big return perhaps even a 10 times return um, in, in the exceptional cases. And you're not going to get that without scalability. So they need to be targeting um, a market that's going to allow them to grow enough to have the revenues to support the kind of scale that, that, that we would want to see for an equity investment. Otherwise, they should be looking at debt or they should be looking at other sources of funding that are more suitable for the sorts of businesses that don't want to scale in that way. But putting a number on it is really hard. I can tell you the number isn't $1 billion, um, <laughs> because you can scale without having a market um, that's, that's, that's the size of $1 billion. Do, you, do you approach the market, though, with uh, mental rigidity in terms of the market's this size now? But, you know, I, I always cite Snapchat mm-hmm. as creating ephemeral sure. messaging uh, so how do you approach kind of category creation that's really interesting yeah you have to be open-minded you have to be aware that you you could be looking at a company that that right now yeah the market doesn't really exist but then what the company has to do is they have to be smart about it they have to be able to explain why it is that they believe that there is going to be a market and if there's some the brand new idea that they can actually legitimize themselves and grow a market around them and if they can do that then that, that's very impressive, but it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do. Mm-hmm. What do you, because often uh, explaining and describing the narrative is the key to actually getting the investment. So, so what are your commonalities when you look at the past pitches? You've seen thousands now, I'm sure, of pitches. What are the commonalities in the ones that have really been able to do this well and succinctly in describing their vision, the narrative and the market? We hear this phrase, you should be able to describe what you do to a six-year-old. <laughs> and I think that's true. <laughs> 
Because, firstly, even those investors who do have the specialist knowledge to understand something really, really technical, not even they necessarily want to spend um, days poring over the details if they're not going to be actually working on it themselves. You know, so it's about focusing on the right things first. You know, don't delve into all the details straight away. Get to the top line stuff. Explain your reason for existing and why you're doing something better than the incumbent in the market is doing. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't do that, you don't do it succinctly, you're just not going to grab people's attention. How much of a problem is the massively inflated uh, tagline today? I mean, you know, I I always uh, hear you should be able to do it in five words. That's the kind of value (laughs) prop for me. But, But how much of a problem is it now to this day? It seems to have deteriorated a little, or has it not? I think this depends. We've got this little postcard in the office that says, it says blah, blah, blah. And then it's got, it's crossed out. (laughs) Um, I think if those five words are, well, this is going to be more than five words, but we are strategic leverage company that can make everything better. (laughs) Or we're going to strategically leverage something to just make something better. That doesn't mean anything. You know, you can have a short strap line if it actually has meaning, but that's not easy to do. And sometimes it takes two or three sentences of just actual words to explain it. And if that's the case, then so be it. I don't think there should be this need to be able to describe what you do in as few words as possible just just for the sake of it. You said about pouring over the data there with investors who maybe don't want to pour over all the data. Uh, instead, that's your job. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. But, but, but which elements then are you most drawn to first? You know, Is it all about you know five-year projections? Uh, what's it for no, you? No, definitely no, not. No, the projections are... <laughs> yeah. So, so what is it for you then? Yes, burn rate is very important. So I mean, it's uh, well, obviously with our model, it's so important to understand who's already investing. So I know I'm banging on about that, but it's just so important because that's how we're set up to function. Um, and if we've got there, then we're on to the next stage. And at that point, it's about knowing it, it, can the company at least survive until tomorrow? You know, has it got some runway to get through the next few months? And so it's not just raising cash hand to mouth literally this moment. Then I think the next consideration does actually become about scale. What's the potential? here because it doesn't it doesn't necessarily need to be everyone's favorite investment there are lots of investments that are you know just interesting to some people and not to others and and it's important to us to remain sector agnostic and i think one of the things that um some of the biases that you can end up in is oh is this interesting to me and that's a dangerous trap Whereas if you can see that it's clearly interesting to somebody, and that's that's obviously where explaining and justifying the market comes in so quickly. Okay. And that's the first thing you're looking for, really, when you're, when you're starting to go through the details. How much runway do you like companies to have when they come to you? I always suggest nine months pre-going out to raise more. What, what's the commonalities for you? Do you get three-month companies, and what do you like to see in their runway? Well, so obviously, you know, different companies uh, of different sizes are burning through different different amount different amounts of cash and it, it can be quite difficult to look at a company that's say raising an SEIS round of 150k and say you need to have nine months worth of burn it's quite unrealistic you know if I, if, if I was a you know if I was looking to put in uh, 20 million in a post revenue company then yeah they better have some runway <laughs> a lot of it you know so it, it is a it's it's got to be proportional to the amount they want to raise it's got to be proportional to how soon they plan to be in revenue um, I think if you had to put a rule of thumb on it then then, then, then yes, you know, no, certainly no fewer than three, uh, because you know th- that's not even going to get the company through its syndicate room funding round otherwise. And I'd love to dive into a quick fire with you now. So it's a short statement, and then you provide me a sixty-second answer. How does that sound? All right, yeah, that sounds fun. So let's do. Let's start with your favourite blog or newsletter. What are your kind of must opens? 
Oh, um, if I had to pick one, it would be Seth Godin. He he keeps me connected to things that aren't necessarily what I do in my day-to-day role because it's very marketing focused, but he reminds me to think about the end game and, and who's actually looking at the work that we're doing and what does it mean? Why does it matter? What's been the highlight of your startup journey? Was it the first company that was funded by Syndicate Room? Was it the largest? What's been the highlight so far? Uh, I have an instant uh, view in my mind of um, a team. I think we were about 10 at that point. And we're, funnily enough, 10 because we're crouched down in front of a banner that says 10 million. And it was when we'd helped help to raise 10 million. And that is just, that it was so exciting. And it really sticks in my mind. And then going from the highlight to a challenge, what's mm-hmm. the most challenging thing today? What, what do you find still persists today and, and is difficult? I think it's difficult knowing that you can't always see the problem before it comes. Sometimes you see the problem only when it's out there in the real world and then you have to face up to it. Um, and obviously we try to avoid that happening. Um, but, you know, you, you've, you've missed something, for example, and then we have to say, you know, yeah, hold your hands up, we missed this, and then you, you explain it and you, you deal with it and you learn from it and you move on. But those are always the most challenging scenarios. What would you like to see change in the UK angel investing ecosystem? It's an obvious point, but the more variety we can get into the types of, of, of angels who are investing in companies, the, the more different sorts of companies we're going to see receive angel investment. I think it comes back to the earlier point I made about people ultimately, if they're investing, if they're the ones putting the cash in, not a, not a platform or facilitator like us just reviewing it, you go for what you're interested in. And, and if, if all of the cash is tied up, only with certain interests, then then others maybe get get pushed to the side. So I suppose it's almost like a, a wider comment on society that the more we balance out the cash, the more we get the cash into a variety of different things, social, environmental, women's, all that sort of stuff. I think that's important. And then favourite book, what's been the biggest <gasps> one for you? Favourite book? Yeah. Uh, you know what, I can't remember who it's by, but when I first um, started started working at syndicate room actually before then i first saw syndicate room existed and thought oh you know i might write an application and try and get a job i um i bought a book about crowdfunding which at the time was just mostly about rewards crowdfunding but you know what i owe a lot to that book because it piqued my interest so quickly in in the idea that funding can just come from so many different sources and it just reminds you that you know you can have a million pounds in a million different ways it doesn't have to be a million pounds from one source it could be a million pounds from a million people obviously you know that's going to be a bit trickier to try and get a million people to put in a pound but it that that's the thing that sparked my interest and was so exciting and it stayed with me you know you've got all the there are loads of obviously really important kind of books around like six sigma and and, and doing things right in the day-to-day work and structuring things but if i had to pick something like really just one memorable book it would be that one talk to me about the next five years for you and for syndicate room what's in the road ahead we want to be the platform that helps companies get through their whole equity journey. So, you know, it's a... From from, seed to IPO. Exactly right. Exactly. At every point. So it's about um, continuing to grow in the the types of uh, private deals we've already done, doing more of the the public side, which we've only started doing this year since... um, setting up with the LSE um, and just essentially, and then being able to watch companies a little bit like children, you know, going right the way through it and, and hopefully using us as a platform for every single step. And if we can do that, then we're right where we want to be. And that's, that's the plan. Well, Fran, thank you so much for joining me today. It really has been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. 
And I'd like to give a huge hand to Fran for giving up the time today to come on the show. It really was so fantastic to see the insight into her DD process. And if you love the show and would like to see more from us, then you can go to www.syndicateroom.com and check out the Learning Academy, where there's a whole host of investor articles and podcasts for you to check out. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Syndicate Room. As always, we so appreciate your support and look very forward to bringing you next week's episode.